Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today you're going to actually get a really big dose of Lorenzo, along with some sound bites and discussion about the growing student protests, particularly the ones that are currently underway in Canada. But before I introduce the talk that we're about to hear, I first want to point you to a Kickstarter campaign that may be of interest to you. And it is by way of a little coincidence that I learned about it just a few hours ago. The person behind this campaign is the Renaissance man Howard Bloom, who, among other things, launched the public relations firm that had a lot to do with the rise of musicians such as uh, Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Aerosmith, Queen, Kiss, Simon and Garfunkel, Billy Joel, and <laughs> over a hundred others. So his street cred in the music business is well established. However, it was a book that he wrote that uh, first brought him to my attention. It's titled The Global Brain, The Evolution of Mass Mind from the Big Bang to the 21st Century. And it is a book that I highly recommend. At the time it was published, uh, my own book that we're going to hear about in a few minutes, The Spirit of the Internet, Speculations on the Evolution of Global Consciousness, well, that book had uh, been out for about a year already, and uh, so I was really fascinated to watch Howard's book climb to the top of the Amazon list, uh, while my own book had only sold a few hundred copies by then. Obviously, uh, Howard knows a lot more about selling books than I ever will, and uh, so I became involved in his online community for several years until my nomadic ways took me away from the net for an extended period, and so I kind of lost touch with him. But just as I was about to begin working on today's podcast, I received a message from him telling me about his next upcoming book, The God Problem, and uh, asking if I would let you know about his Kickstarter campaign to raise funds for a uh, campaign to publicize it. Uh, once the book is available at the end of this coming August, I'll have more to say about it, and hopefully we'll get Howard into the salon here to uh, talk about it a little. But for now, I'll leave you with what Barbara Ehrenreich had to say about this book. If Howard Bloom is only 10% right, we'll have to drastically revise our notions of the universe. There's no mysticism in the God problem. No God, no religion, no incommunicable spirit insights. Just the contagious joy of a great mind set loose on the biggest intellectual puzzles humans have ever faced. Whether you're a scientist or a hyper-curious layperson, Bloom's argument will rock your world. And uh, since I've always valued Barbara Ehrenreich's opinion, I can only say that it is with great anticipation that I await Howard's new book. And uh, I'll post the link to his Kickstarter campaign in the program notes to uh, today's podcast so you can read more about his work on your own. Now, the little coincidence that prompted me to bring this up right now is the fact that the talk that I had just finished editing for inclusion in today's podcast was a talk that I gave on March 14th, 2001, about my own book, The Spirit of the Internet, which in uh, many ways complements the things that Howard wrote about in The Global Brain. And uh, so I thought it was an interesting little synchronicity. Anyway, uh, to set the scene for this talk, it was given at a meeting of a group that calls itself the Inside Edge, which is a speaker's forum that has been an important fixture in the intellectual life of Southern California since 1985. In fact, you've already heard uh, one other Inside Edge talk here in the salon back in podcast 145, 
And that talk was given by Timothy Leary. Interestingly, uh, at least interestingly to me, <laughs> I think that the talk that I gave and uh, the one you're about to hear right now actually discusses the issue of psychedelics more than uh, did Dr. Leary at the time. To be honest, I was a little concerned about bringing up that subject to this particular audience since it was what to me seemed like a uh, somewhat conservative, straight-laced group of uh, professionals and business people. However, it turned out to be an audience that bought more of my books that morning than any audience has before or since. And I should mention that uh, the Inside Edge meetings are held so early in the morning that it was still dark as I made my way there. It uh, still amazes me how they can get hundreds of people to turn out so early in the morning to listen to speakers who, in cases like me, were complete unknowns. It's a very interesting group of movers and shakers, and if you live in the Los Angeles area, you may want to look up uh, their website and uh, look into attending some of their sessions, as it's uh, probably one of the best places for networking in Southern California. So now let's roll back the clock to March of 2001, which at the time we didn't realize was still a period of relative innocence, a pre-9-11 time, a time when we were still amazed that over 400,000 people were already connected to the Internet, and a time when there were people even predicting that by today there would be close to 1 billion people connected. Little did we expect that by 2012 there would now be over 4 billion people already taking the Internet for granted. So now uh, let's travel back in time a few years and uh, hear what was on my mind back in March of 2001. Uh, in the computer business, in the Navy, uh, as, as an author of uh, a variety of books on technology, uh, he's been a business trainer, trainer on goal setting, a motivational speaker. He's had, if you look at his extensive resume, he's had about three or four different careers. Uh, incarnations, if you will, and he's really uh, he's really inspired by and committed to telling us about the uh, that the internet has an important spiritual component, uh, and that there are aspects of spirit uh, involved in the internet community. So uh, he's a really uh, talented, multifaceted gentleman, and let's give him a big inside edge welcome and bring him to the stage. Thank you all. I'd like to thank you for inviting me here today and thank Sydney for introducing me to this uh, organization. That it's uh, an honor to speak to such a forward-thinking group that you don't realize probably how forward-thinking you are compared to many other groups that uh, we see around the country. And I have to admit that I absolutely love your name, The Inside Edge. Uh, most of my life, my, my friends and particularly employers, told me I was a little too far out on the edge for them. And I always said, well, at least it's the inside edge. You know? So I'm, it's very reassuring to see how many other people have been there with me all this time. And by the way, if you don't feel like taking notes this early in the morning, which I never do, uh, I have a complete printed full text version of this presentation that uh, is going to be available on our, our website. I've given it to Michael. I don't know if uh, you'll be able to get it on your website, but uh, if you go to mine, matrixmasters.com, toward the end of the week, you'll be able to get the whole full text version of this. The, uh, I've noticed that most of your speakers talk about interdirected 
self-awareness, self-building. Uh, and today I'm going to ask you to take some of that strength, that inner strength that you've been building, and, and look at projecting it and taking it out into the world a little bit, because I think that we were at a point in our species history, if you will, where we really need some really strong people to go out into the world and take a spiritual approach to our business and our daily lives and in our technology. I'll be speaking today about my book, The Spirit of the Internet, some of the subjects I touch on in there, and so that you don't panic. I know we've already had some discussion at our table, and we all agree that we all hate computers because they don't do what they should do or we think they should do. I, this isn't going to be a highly technical talk. I'm not going to go geek on you, so you don't have to worry about that. What I'll really be talking about is the intersection of spirituality and technology. And if you'll forgive me, I've, I've got some notes here. I wrote this uh, presentation just for this morning, and so it's not like a canned presentation I have memorized. So if you'll forgive me, I'll be looking at my notes a little bit. Actually, today I'm going to mention uh, three books, four actually, but the, uh, the three main books I'm going to mention are my, my own, and uh, one by Gene Houston, and a third book that I'll talk about in just a minute. I think these three books help round out the picture of the future that we are in the midst of creating right now. And the first of those books is one that I'm sure many of you have, uh, most of you probably heard about, many of you probably read. It's called The Cultural Creatives by uh, Sherry Ruth Anderson and her husband Paul Ray. And in a nutshell, these, these people are sociologists who have been studying cultures, how cultures form, how they're grown, how they're nourished. And they discovered, as, as you would expect, our American culture has primarily two subcultures, the traditionals who want to go back to the good old days that probably never really were, and the moderns who want to keep things just about the way they are because they're starting to get their share. But what the, uh, what the Rays discovered is that a third group started evolving toward the end of the 60s, and they call this group the cultural creatives. They are not necessarily liberal, conservative, new age. They, they fit all specters of life, but they have a little different outlook on life. And that outlook is their underlying themes are ecological and planetary in perspective. They see the big picture a little bit more. And the, the real big news about this, the real big news is because I think many of us in this room, you'll, you'll see in a minute the definition of a cultural creative, you'll kind of think, well, that fits me. And every time I, I mention this to friends, they say, well, I'm one, but you know, there's not many of us around. Here's the big news, and this is a quote. Since the 1960s, 26% of the adults in the United States, 50 million adult Americans, have made a comprehensive shift in their worldview, values, and way of life, their culture in short. 50 million Americans are starting to see the big picture. It's a really tremendous shift that's taking place. And the biggest, here's, here's the interesting thing. These people see the big picture. They, they're synthesizers, healers. They understand the importance of an inner self-awareness. And yet the biggest weakness of this group, they think they're all alone. They think it's them and one or two of their friends. You know, maybe they belong to a group like this. And you think, well, we're the only ones like this in this whole county. But it turns out there's a big, big and fast-growing group of cultural creatives, the people that are creating the culture. And the reason I think the creation of culture is important is because culture is what ultimately defines us as who we are as a people. It's what teaches our children what they should do, what they shouldn't do, what they should long for, what they should question, what they should dream about. These are all cultural values. And you know, we, of course, live in, in the Western culture. 
and quite frankly, here we are on the, on the left coast of the, we used to, I used to live in Florida, so we called this the left coast. I hope you don't mind that. <laughs> well, you look at the map, you know, and it's on the left. Uh, but here we are on the literally edge of the North American continent, and it's the edge of the West, the Western world. Where do we expand from, Western civilization? Uh, not many of us are going to be able to go up into outer space or down to the bottom of the ocean. So where does the, where does the expansion of culture go to? Well, fortunately, there's now another dimension, and it's the dimension of cyberspace. Now, cyberspace is, is kind of a nebulous con, uh, concept. In my, in my book, I spend a, a fair amount of time trying to nail down what cyberspace is because there's a lot of different definitions and concepts of, of cyberspace. For this morning, I think the easiest one to lock onto is one that Bruce Sterling, uh, a novelist, came up with. And he said, cyberspace is the place a telephone conversation takes place. It's a, a space where a telephone conversation happens. It doesn't happen in the receiver on your end. It doesn't happen on the receiver on the other end. It doesn't happen in the wires. It's that, that mind space, the place where, where your minds are in, in a conversation. And the important part about this, a couple important parts, one is that this is a mental space where communications are taking place and technology is involved. But keep in mind, it's, cyberspace is not a physical place. There are no material elements in it, no bodies. So another, it's a place where mind and technology coincide. In other words, another word for mind, obviously, could be spirit. So cyberspace, just by definition, is a place of spirit. Now, the original intent I had when I was writing my book, when I first began it, was to write a, a brief history of the, the original spirit of the people who built the internet back in 69 and the 70s and the, the uh, academic and defense industry crowd. They, they really had a little different spirit than many of the other technology developers were. And the spirit of the first uh, adapters. Uh, essentially, I want to write a history of the net before the web came along in the 90s. But what happened is the book started taking on a life of its own. And before long, I realized that I had totally left that concept and I had to come up with a subtitle. So the subtitle for my book is Speculations on the Evolution of Global Consciousness. And this is kind of a heavy uh, subtitle, but when you see what's going on, you'll see that we're living in some pretty strange days, and the Internet is a pretty strange uh, piece of technology. But the themes today and in my book are essentially the spiritual essence of technology. And I think, I think it's important to keep in mind that at heart, at our core, we are spiritual beings. We happen to be in a material incarnation, but we're spiritual beings in a material world. And the material world of necessity requires technology. I know there's a lot of discussion, in, in, uh, particularly in New Age circles, about getting rid of technology. But, you know, our clothes, our shoes are technology. Everything we do is involved in technology. A biological survivability depends upon technology. If we, if we cut off our electricity and, and our water plants and sewer plants... We're not going to survive these civilizations very long. So technology is important. It plays a crucial role. And technology, of course, also plays a crucial role in the formation of cultures. Uh, just one technology that's already been mentioned this morning is the technology called television. Uh, that certainly sh shapes a culture. If you want, uh, I think, a sure sign of someone who is a cultural creative is somebody that can surf 100 channels of cable TV and not find anything they want to watch, you know? <laughs> That, you know, if you want to see what the dominant culture finds worth preserving, look at television. Look at, watch, and, and the commercials. Somebody said some of the commercials are more interesting than the shows, and I agree that the, particularly the funny ones, I like them. But, 
if you watch the advertisements, you'll see what the moderns wish to preserve. This is the culture they wish to preserve, all the things that we are trying to sell to each other. This is a, a cultural tool. And, of course, many of us, I think some people today even said, you know, how did we get to this state where this is our culture? Is there any hope to, to get above this? Can our species rise to a higher level of consciousness than what we see on just normal television? Well, I believe not only is a change of consciousness required in the days immediately ahead, but I think there's a measurable change of consciousness taking place on this planet that people are kind of ignoring. And I think there's hard evidence and measurable evidence of this. If you'll think back to the 1980s, when uh, a lot of writers were talking about the young people just getting into the workforce, and they called them the me generation. Uh, some of you probably were the me generation. And uh, allegedly the me generation was only about getting theirs and they were greedy. Well, at the same time, futurists were writing about the end of the industrial age and the beginning of the information age. And you couple that with the fact that today we really are truly into the information age. We've begun that. And so here's an age where material resources that come out of the earth, you know, ore and gold and diamonds, aren't as valuable as the primary resource of the age, information. And what are we doing with information on the Internet? We're giving it away to a large degree. Now, it's not perfect. There's only, what, about 400 million people so far on the planet that have connection. But if you can get access to an Internet connection, there's a lot of information that's being given away. I, I've done a lot of consulting in corporations, and, and I've sat in, uh, in meetings where you know, CEOs would say, well, you want a $10,000 budget, budget for this website. What's it going to do to the bottom line? And people say, I don't know, but we've got to have it. And Sure enough, there it goes up there. There's, there's a wealth of valuable, you know, there's a lot of bad information on the Internet, but there's a lot of really good information. In fact, the number one thing that people search for is healthcare information. And there's a lot of valuable healthcare information. I, I experienced that myself when I'd had a medical crisis about five years ago. Without the Internet, I, I might have had a much more difficult time of it. So here we are in a, in a new age, and the supposedly me generation who are coming into control are giving away the most natural, uh, the biggest resource of the age. I think that's a measurable change in consciousness. Now, I actually go a little bit farther and think that the Internet is, is actually the physical manifestation of the evolution of human consciousness. I think it's something physical that we can see and measure and see that our consciousness as a species is starting to change. Now, the first chapter in my book is actually called A Place Called Cyberspace. And in it, I talk about new communities that are forming, virtual communities that are forming in cyberspace. They're essentially colonies of consciousness. In fact, many of you probably don't give a, a lot of thought to this, but there is a virtual community in cyberspace that formed around this very organization. Uh, I have many friends that come to your website and come back and look at programs that were, were aired in the past. You have, you're kind enough to put this information out on the, on the web. These, some, today it's being broadcast live around the web. All, anywhere in the world with the Internet connection, someone can tap into this or they can tap in next week and bring down some of the, the speakers that you have brought here. So by supporting this organization, you maybe don't think about it this way, but by supporting this organization, you are actually supporting the birth and growth of culture in cyberspace. This is how the culture in cyberspace is being formed. Another culture in cyberspace that you may not have had too much experience with, but is a very important one, and it's not written in the press, uh, the, the popular press at all that I can find. It's, they're called inhabited virtual worlds. 
And these are, are essentially worlds that people go into and build. It, it's not virtual reality. I know you, you, virtual reality makes the news where you can put on the headgear and see all these, you know, experience things and have, uh, you know, be in a movie yourself, whatever. But virtual reality is very expensive. Not many people can afford the equipment. The inhabited virtual worlds work on just your average home computer. It's a two-dimensional flat screen that gives a 3D perspective, and you get in a little avatar, and you move your mouse, and it moves you through these worlds. Well, they set up cities where colonists, cyber colonists, come in and subdivide the city, and they build things. And social rules have to evolve. You, know, you have to have some rules. You, you can't build here. You can't put a fence. Just like we have in, in, in the flesh here, in cyberspace, colonies are evolving, so much so that archaeologists have gone back to some of these cyber cities and are digging down to see what was under these buildings. Sociologists are, are doing a lot of... Re there's a lot of PhD candidates doing work on these because a cyber colony, a cyber civilization, evolves on Internet time. You may have heard the expression, Internet time. It, it's uh, like a dog year, seven, seven to one, that if you're working in the Internet field, the seven times things happen in one year. Uh, there's talk now it's going to hamster years, 26 to one, but uh, <laughs> let's hope that doesn't happen. But there's a very, here's the, um, uh, the point I'm trying to make, and it's very important. I'll come back to this in my conclusion. Cyberspace is a very real place. It's not imaginary. It's a very real place. And it happens to be a, a, a place that cultural creatives really thrive. Now, I devote another chapter in my book to the relationship between the Internet and the newosphere. Uh, how, how many of you have heard that term, newosphere? I'm sure, yeah, I, I know some of you have, probably uh, more than, than realize, that in the 1960s there was a very popular book by a man named Teilhard de Chardin. He wrote a book called The Phenomena of Man. And in that book, Chardin postulated that there's a membrane of thought around this planet. We have the geosphere, the biosphere, the atmosphere, and around that, the newosphere. And the newosphere, he postulated, is actually a, a, is sort of like our species consciousness, that all human consciousness uh, winds up in the newosphere, is what he, he postulated. And he postulated as a, a living membrane of thought. He also predicted that at some point in time, and he thought perhaps this could be 100,000 years, a million years in the future, that the newosphere would reach some sort of omega point. And this was, was sort of like the moment of enlightenment where the whole species acquired some sort of a planetary perspective. And he, and he likened it to like the newosphere turning into a sea of consciousness where every drop was intimately aware of its own existence and individuality as a drop, and yet at the same time was fully aware that it was part of a much larger body, essentially a human species consciousness. Now, he foresaw this in, well, he wrote the book in 1938, and he saw this as, as our species, our all humans, essentially achieving sort of super psychic abilities and looking at things from a global perspective. Now, what does the Internet have to do with the newosphere, you might ask. Well, I asked myself the same question for quite a while. And I thought I was the only one asking that question until I started doing some research. And I found hundreds of websites talking about it. I found thousands of people talking about it. And I thought, well, there goes that original idea. But <laughs> I wrote a book about it anyhow. Uh, nobody else was doing that. So as I, as I kept doing my research, 
I came across the, what I think is probably the last uh, writing Chardin did about the noosphere, and that was a paper he wrote in 1937. Even though the Phenomena Man came out in, in the late 50s, he wrote it in 38, and uh, he was a Jesuit priest, and they wouldn't let him print it because <laughs> it didn't write, follow into uh, their teachings at the time. Uh, I don't think it does yet. But <laughs> I went to Notre Dame, so uh, I didn't fall into their teachings either. They don't even send me literature anymore. Uh, <laughs> but he, he wrote this article in 47 in a, in a French journal, it was called, and it was titled The Formation of the Newosphere. And in it, he, he, uh, he said that the newosphere, to really reach an omega point, required a mechanical infrastructure, and that's what was lacking. And he saw, of course, this was in 1947. There are only a handful of computers on the planet. And he saw the, the radio and television as possibly the mechanical infrastructure. But even though computers were so new, he even mentioned, he says, and it could even be those insidious computers, which I found amazing, for a Jesuit uh, uh, paleontologist in 1947 to foresee what would happen with networked computers when a computer had never even been networked yet. So it was a very, for, uh, you know, very for, forward-looking uh, projection. Now, there's two speculations here. Remember, the subtitle of my book begins with the word speculation. So the first speculation is that there is a newosphere. The second speculation is that the Internet is a mechanical infrastructure. And so you'll have to kind of ride with me on those two speculations through the rest of this because that's what, what the book is built on. Now, I'm not saying the Internet is the newosphere. The closest metaphor is obviously the, the most obvious one, too, is the, the brain is to the mind what the Internet is to the newosphere. You know, our brain is the physical substrate that our mind rides on, and the same with the Internet and the newosphere, possibly. If these speculations are correct, what will this mean for global consciousness? You know, what does this mean for our species? I'll come back to this in a minute, but first I'd like to mention another speculation that I don't think is too speculative, at least in this crowd, and that is that the Earth herself is conscious. I believe that, I call it Gaia. You may call it Mother Nature. And, you know, some people think this consciousness is uh, merely just a complex series of feedback loops that we don't understand yet. Other people think it's actually conscious. I believe it's, it's sort of a conscious being. I, I meant to uh, ask to have a, a sheet here so I could draw this picture, and I forgot to do that. But if you'll, if you'll think of Gaian consciousness as a big oval, Gaian awareness, Gaian consciousness, I see it as the collective consciousness of all the mineral consciousness, the plant consciousness, the animal consciousness. And then part of that animal consciousness is the newosphere. And I see the newosphere is not totally incorporated into Gaian consciousness. Part of it's kind of hanging out. And the part that's incorporated are essentially what I see as the cultural creatives, the people that have an ecological and a planetary perspective. And they're the ones that are trying to pull the rest of the newosphere into a more planetary Gaian awareness. Now, the defining characteristics of a, a cultural creative are exactly that. And I, I believe that our job, all of us have a job, to try to pull the rest of our species into more of a Gaian perspective, a more global and ecological perspective. Now, how do we do that? As I thought about that problem, I thought, what kind of tools can we use to speed up this process? Because things are going downhill from an ecological standpoint. So how are we going to get people, get the rest of our species looking at things at, at a global scale? Uh, so I looked at, at a study of the archaic past. What, what did the civilizations do way back before industrialization you know, disrupted the rhythms of the planet? And what I found was really intriguing. And, and this is... It may sound controversial, but it's backed up by lots of research. 
lots of books, lots of PhD dissertations. Virtually every ancient culture that's been studied, literally every ancient culture, formed around some sort of sacred plant, a visionary plant, a psychedelic plant. These plants didn't come into these cultures after the cultures were formed, the cultures actually formed around some kind of visionary plant. You know, our, our prehistoric ancestors and some of our historic ancestors participated in these rituals with mushrooms or peyote or whatever, some of these visionary psychedelic substances. And this is what their cultures formed around. Now, Western culture has achieved this sense of superiority. You know, we put down on these natives and all oh, these shamans in the jungle drinking ayahuasca. You know, what do they know? Uh, if you read a book by Jeremy Narby called The Cosmic Serpent, you'll be surprised what they know, that he's actually taken molecular biologists to the Amazon to quiz shamans about DNA and molecular biology, and these men and women who have never been to school can tell them more than they have learned in a lot of their laboratories. There's something very important and interesting going on here. So... Here in the West, we say, well, that's just some superstition. What we forget is that we are a product of Greek civilization. The ancient Greeks, you know, they, they formed their culture, really was formed around the Eleusian mysteries, the, the Greek mysteries, and the inner circle, the ones that formed their cultures, participated in these rites. And it's very well established now that the center, the core of those mysterious rites was the participation by the, the, the initiates of, of drinking this brew that was ergot-infested rye. Now, if you want to know the modern name of that, the chemical synthesis of it is called LSD. And that's what Western civilization was formed on. This is, this is pretty well documented, but it's not very well reported. Yeah. Now, <laughs> It's, it's, uh, it doesn't make the front page every day anyhow. We don't want to talk about these things. But if you think about why did these plants evolve, they're not plants that we eat. They're not, they don't provide nourishment. They, provide, they, they obviously evolved for some reason to some way to provide a communications channel between humans and the other, or between humans and Gaia. They're a communications technology. That's primarily what they were and what they're used for. Now, today, we've made their use, even in a spiritual practice, a criminal offense. If you grow one of these plants, we'll put you in a cage for several years. You know, so we have cut off a communications channel with the other. We've cut off a channel of communications with Gaia. And there comes now the third major speculation in my book. And I believe the Internet is a product of evolution and has actually evolved as a new form of sacred plant, a new form of sacred medium to help our species expand our mind and see more of a global view. And I think it serves and acts in the same method, same manner, as these sacred visionary plants. And that, again, is to bring us into more of a full state of Gaian awareness. Now, I think it's important to note that most technologies become infused with the spirit of those that created it, too. And, again, this should come as no surprise because it's very well documented. It's been written about uh, extensively. But the Internet was designed, built, and is largely operated by the, most of the key people consider themselves psychedelic. Uh, you might be surprised to see uh, some of our great national scientific laboratories where people consider themselves highly psychedelic. And I believe that any technology, look at television, is infused with the spirit that created it, essentially commercialism. The Internet was actually built and designed and created by people who were very psychedelic. And I think as such, it has evolved as a sort of a psychedelic communications uh, technology. Now, the reason that I think this is so important 
the state of mind of the creators of this technology is almost universally you also will find that people that ingest these substances become very green. It brings out the deep ecology in people. It's really amazing. If you go out to the web where you can see hundreds of thousands of reports of people that use these substances and read some of the great books that are out, you'll find almost to a single person, they, uh, it awakens in them a sense of a global planetary ecological perspective. So I really believe the Internet as a technology created by green people is a green technology. Where is this going to take us? Uh, Nicholas Negroponte, who many of you know uh, is one of the founders of MIT's Media Lab and is probably one of the world's leading futurists, uh, he, w he predicts that before this decade is over, there will be over one billion people connected to the Internet. Most of them will be connected through wireless transmissions. Over half of them will be speaking Chinese. That's before this decade is over. And before long, before 25 years is up, the majority of people in this country, in this world, third world included, the majority, over half, well over half the people, will have daily, instant co connection to the Internet, will always be connected. They'll always be able to instantly email or chat with their friends. They'll be able to be in constant touch with their families. They're going to be able to access essentially the whole body of human information uh, through the Internet. This is going to actually change the way people see the world. There are already programmers working in China, India, Russia, working in their homes for American corporations. What's that going to do in, in 10, 15 years? Right now it's mainly programmers, but the telecommuting is going to become global. What's it going to mean when everybody in the world knows at least one person who's working for a foreign com company? And it's going to give us a much more planetary perspective. Now, according to Chardin, part of the newosphere becoming, reaching the omega point is when humans achieve some sort of super psychic ability, able to tap into a lot of knowledge. I'm not saying the Internet is the newosphere, remember. It's just a tool. But I think it's a tool that has the power to move our whole species consciousness to a much higher level, to a planetary level. And I don't want to preach doom and gloom here, but I believe that unless we, as a human species, move to a higher level of consciousness, such as you have been working on most of your lives, and particularly in this group, unless we can move the rest of our neighbors up to that higher level of consciousness, we don't have a lot of time left to change what's going on ecologically. Things are getting pretty dire. And the Internet comes along as a, an aid to out-of-the-box thinking, to essentially psychedelic thinking. You know, the word psychedelic doesn't mean hallucinations. It means mind-expanding, mind-manifesting, and that's what it's all about. And the Internet, I believe, is a new sacred medium that can help move human consciousness, species consciousness, to a much higher level. Now, I'm not talking about substances here. This isn't about, about ingesting substances or, or, or doing this, having this illegal, not illegal, whatever. What I'm talking about is expanding our consciousness, using tools to expand our consciousness to see the bigger picture. Now, there isn't, isn't a lot of time today because I want to leave a little time for questions and answers, so I don't have time to uh, go into a lot of the other things that are in my book, but I think you'll probably find them interesting because on your website, your guiding principle says, we welcome the challenge of change. And I don't know if you realize what you signed up for when you did that, but <laughs> you couldn't have picked a better place in, in time and history to be alive than right now. And just the one change I'd like to point out that sometimes is, is being forgotten the last half of the last century, we saw technology in particular go up at an exponential rate. But what's happening now is the rate of change in technology has also become exponential. 
And when the rate of change becomes exponential, some strange things and some good things are going to happen. In the next uh, 10 to 20 years, we're going to see amazing things happen. And, uh, you, you've got nanotechnology. We're going to be regrowing organs. We're going to be augmenting our hearing, our eyes with cyber uh, connections of some kind. We're actually going to be entering into an age where my granddaughter's child, my granddaughter is only two, but her child should have a life expectancy of 200 years. Now, that's, that's coming. I mean, that, if you start reading Scientific American, some of these journals, we're really at, just at the beginning of some just awesome changes that are going to happen. But while all that good stuff is happening, there's, there's a cloud out on the horizon. And that cloud 20 years ago was like no bigger than a man's hand. But now it, it threatens to fill the whole sky. And that cloud is our global ecological crisis. I don't think it's... We're at the point where we can't ignore this anymore. The United Nations, just last month, uh, released a report that was put together by 700 scientists. This report made the front pages for not quite a whole day. But here is one of the, a quote from their conclusions. Projected climate changes during the 21st century have the potential to lead to future large-scale and possibly irreversible changes in Earth systems. Possibly irreversible changes, and we may be to that point already. This is very significant, very serious, never stays on the front pages. And until recently, I have to admit, it didn't penetrate my everyday consciousness too much. But after reading that report, now I realize before this century is over, the people who are living in coastal Florida, which includes part of my family, will all have to move. Essentially, all of coastal Florida is going to be underwater by the end of this century, and that's probably too late to change that now. We're already at the point of no return. In California here, the focus is very sharp. We know we've got a severe water problem. We certainly have an energy problem. This time, these problems aren't just going to go away. We can't ignore We can't think they're going to just magically fix themselves. You know, We're going to have to face the situation that it's time for us as a complete species around the planet to live a sustainable life. We're certainly not doing that now. And there's going to be some very hard choices ahead. We've got one that this country is facing here shortly, and that's the National Arctic uh, Wildlife Refuge up in, in uh, Alaska, that we want to drill for oil there, or some people do. I don't. That The best estimates I see, there's six months' worth of oil. For, if you're supplying the whole United States, there's only six months' worth of oil. We're going to take a chance at totally destroying all the wildlife up there for this little drilly supply. And it's going to take, what, two to five years to get the infrastructure built and the oil out and start bringing it in. We won't do it over six months. We'll take 20 years to do it. Why don't we spend the next two to four years instead figuring out ways to reduce our demand by the amount that that new supply would bring us? I mean, it's just real simple. It's not in the pipeline today, and these are hard choices. It's going to cost us money. We're going to have to live more sustainably. But I think most of us realized at some point in time that, 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 that we're going to have to change the way we live. But we all thought that day was kind of far off. You know, maybe our grandchildren are going to have to face it, whatever. I think that the people alive on this planet today, all of us, our children, our grandchildren, everybody alive today, we are the ones. It's not just our generation, but it's the people alive today. We're the ones that are going to make the choices that determine the biological survivability of this planet for the next millennium. It's, it's choices we make in the next 10 to 15 years. It's now. We, we can't keep putting this off. Now, this is really kind of pessimistic and doom and gloom, but I am very optimistic that we're going to rise to these challenges and we can do it. And 
the reason I'm so optimistic is because we have this incredible tool we call the Internet. This communications tool, this sacred medium, that this green technology that will help us expand our global awareness. I think the Internet is just of such unprecedented power. For example, environmental groups that have always had the slogan, think globally, act locally, now the local people can interact with each other and even see how their local actions can be built and, and help or, 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 or prevent some good actions taking place. So I think the communications technology, the ability for people to get into the Internet and inhabited virtual worlds and, and is experience a civilization in two years that would take 150 years to grow and evolve and develop and find out what worked, what didn't work. They're, they're using the Internet and virtual reality for a lot of speeded up evolutionary looks at things. And I think the same can happen with culture. And I think it's become taking hold in... in not only in voting, people are starting to vote a little bit more green, but now you can go out to the Internet and find sites that will tell you this company is a terrible polluter. Or if you buy this candy bar, so much of the money is going to go uh, to anti-environmental lobbying, etc. There's The technology used for purposes like this has to be considered a spiritual technology, I believe. You know, Archimedes, I, we all learned in, in grammar school that Archimedes once said, if I had a lever big enough, I could move the world. And the Internet, I believe, is that lever. I think the Internet is big enough to move the world. Now, it's not very obvious to those that are just watching the rise and fall of the dot-com stocks or buy a book here or there or get in a chat room. It's just not so obvious, but I really think that if you step back a little bit and see what's happening. You know, I had a, a neighbor in Florida whose 12-year-old son every Sunday night would stay up till midnight to play chess with a 27-year-old engineer in China. And while they played chess, they would chat. These kind of things are happening by the millions around the globe right now. Things are changing. It's a mar marvelous tool. The concluding chapter in my book, in fact, uh, is titled The Internet as a Cathedral. And I use the metaphor of a cathedral because of the, the great cathedrals were places where people would, would come to this sacred place and they would join in community, they would learn, they'd reflect on new things that they, they, they've learned there. And just like many great cathedrals, if you visit the great cathedrals of Europe, what's the first thing you have to do? You have to get through all the vendors on the outside, you know, selling all the trinkets. Well, the Internet's no different. You've know? <laughs> you got to get through all that garbage up front. But once you get inside, you see the tranquility of this great sacred place. Those, the those great cathedrals of old were built by technology. And this technology, this Internet, if you don't look at it as just wires and strings, but look at it as a great sacred place to come in and grow and learn and develop, I think you'll, you'll approach it with a little different respect, even though it crashes all the time and have to use a computer to do it. Now, these great cathedrals were great, created by technology. Technology is creating the Internet. We're at the dawn of a new age called the Information Age, and at the beginning of this age, I'm, I'm saying we are also at the beginning of a new branch of the human species. And I call this branch Homo Cyber. You know, when, when humans first came into uh, history, started writing history and creating technology, we started a branch called Homo Faber, man the maker, man the tool maker. And with the advent of the net, we're coming and get cybernetically enhanced people, and it's almost cyber. 
Uh, contrary to some futurists, I don't see homo cyber as, as mind uploading into a computer. I don't think consciousness going into a computer is going to be human consciousness. By definition, it can't be. So I'll give you a, a place to look for the, the beginning of homo cyber. The first place to look is at a shopping mall or an airport. You see people everywhere with cell phones in their ears and wires coming out. Now they're worried about the radiation, so they put a wire and put the radiation on the hip instead. Well, those are the beginning of Homo cyber. It's the beginning of the evolution of a new form of our species. And the significance of this step is important because these people are going to have instant access to the body of human nation, all of humanity, and to, to each other. There's one other book I'd like you to, to think about reading at your list. It's Jump Time by Jean Houston. I don't know if you've read it. Many of you heard about it. She brings together a lot of things I have in my book about what's happening right now. The Mayans, ancient Mayans, uh, predicted that at the winter solstice of 2012, there'll be a jump in hum uh, human species consciousness. The uh, scientists like Dr. Werner Vinge have predicted a technological singularity that will take place sometime between 2030. Jean Houston has pulled all these together into a book called Jump Time, talking about the fact that we're about to have a quantum jump. It, it, things are going very fast right now. There's going to be a quantum change take place. And so I highly recommend uh, that book. I think the three books, Spirit of the Internet, Cultural Creatives, and Jump Time, taking in the context of ecological crisis, will put this picture in perspective and give you a little more uh, confidence that we're in good times. These are not times that call for revolutionaries. These are days that call for evolutionaries. You know, that we're not going to overthrow governments. We need to overthrow cultures. You know, it's not evolution is the, the most lasting form of revolution. And so we need to become evolutionaries. I think there's reason to have great faith that we're going to rise to this challenge. But I do realize that, that it gets stressful thinking about these terrible problems we're faced with. So what I'd like to leave you with is the thought that gets me through every day when I think about these big problems and what can I do to solve them. And it's a quote, quote from... Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, he once said, whatever you do will be insignificant, but it is very important that you do it. And I think that's true of all of us. I've kind of given up trying to change the political structure. I've been a political activist and got nowhere. I, I'm now thinking that we have to change our culture, and it begins at the home level, one-on-one -on -one level. I wish I had more time, but thank you so much for inviting me here. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, as you no doubt have already thought to yourself, some of the predictions I mentioned in that talk were off the mark. For example, my rosy view of inhabited virtual worlds hasn't materialized on the scale that I imagined. But in many ways, the world of gaming has become even more populated uh, than other forms of virtual worlds. However, I think that by and large, the spirit of the Internet still stands up quite well today. And if you want to read it online, it's available for free on my Matrix Masters website. And I'll put a link to it in the program notes for today's podcast, uh, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, to those three people who bought a Kindle version of it on Amazon so far this year, I sincerely thank you. Uh, your support is very much appreciated, and uh, you know who you are. So thanks again.
You know, uh, back when I was still working in the belly of the corporate beast and doing what I could back then to spread the word that the Internet was a revolutionary technology, one of the things that was mentioned in almost every conversation that I had with some of the folks who were instrumental in its evolution was that we were striving for the day when the net would become so pervasive and transparent that people wouldn't even think about connecting to it any more than they thought about the fact that they were connecting to the telephone network when they called someone. And it seems to me that we have now reached that moment in time when the technology of the Internet is both taken for granted and looked upon as something close to a basic human right. Without this technology, I think that we would probably still be years away from an Arab Spring and a global shift in consciousness that broadly can be called the Occupy Movement. And while I realize that attaching the word Occupy to every anti-establishment activity uh, that's going on right now may cause some negative reactions in conservative minds, it's still a banner that I intend to use in order to help us all see that no longer are these demonstrations of all kinds just isolated incidents. Today it's much easier to see the interconnectedness of the protests against all kinds of injustice and that we humans truly are interconnected in more ways than we can imagine. And the ongoing action that I want to feature today is a form of an Occupy protest that has been going on for over a hundred days and is actually now really gaining momentum. Uh, I'm talking about the student strike in Quebec, Canada, that uh, looks like it's already spilling over into other countries, including the U.S. Uh, you know, one of my favorite quotes coming out of that movement up there is, we didn't know it was impossible, so we did it. Now, in case you haven't been following the news about this movement, uh, I'd like to read a few lines that Andrew Gavin Marshall wrote in the Maple Spring. It is titled, Ten Things You Should Know About the Quebec Student Movement. The student strikes in Quebec, which began in February and have lasted for three months, involving roughly 175,000 students in the mostly French-speaking Canadian province, have been subjected to massive provincial and national media propaganda, a campaign to demonize and dismiss the students and their struggle. The following is a list of ten points that everyone should know about the student movement in Quebec to help place their struggle in its proper global context. 1. The issue is debt, not tuition. 2. Striking students in Quebec are setting an example for youth across the continent. 3. The student strike was organized through democratic means and with democratic aims. 4. This is not an exclusively Quebecis problem. 5. Government officials and the media have been openly calling for violent and fascist tactics to be used against the students. 6. Excessive state violence has been used against the students. 7. The government supports organized crime and opposes organized students. 8. Canada's elites punish the people and oppose the students. 9. The student strike is being subjected to a massive and highly successful propaganda campaign to discredit, dismiss, and demonize the students. And 10. The student movement is part of a much larger emerging global movement of resistance against austerity, neoliberalism, and corrupt power. Now, as you know, if you've been following the news of this movement, there have been mass demonstrations that brought out hundreds of thousands of people, and over 2,500 people have been arrested so far in conjunction with this student uprising. 
Obviously, the ruling elite of Canada are copying the militaristic police tactics that are also being used against students here in the United States. In Montreal now, it is uh, unlawful to cover your face in public, and they are also trying to eliminate the people's right to peaceably assemble. As one commentator said, we're quickly moving towards a society where there will be two classes of people, those with criminal records and those without. And in a recent article on alternet.org, the authors said, Last night, as we marched in Montreal, it was with the knowledge that hundreds of our Occupy Wall Street comrades in New York were marching in solidarity for the third time. Occupy Wall Street itself grew out of solidarity with the Tunisian and Egyptian and Spanish and Greek uprisings after people began asking themselves, how do we do that here? Now, our generation of students here in the United States has yet to mobilize on such a mass scale, but uh, after watching what's happening up there in Quebec, perhaps that will change. And, in fact, uh, there are also uh, things beginning to heat up here in the States around the student debt bubble, or what is better thought of as perpetual indebted servitude. And uh, now I'd like to play a few sound bites that I've collected to better explain this issue. And I'll begin with a CTV news report from Quebec, and I'll follow that with two bits from RT News about student debt being the new slavery and how it is destroying the future of many of our best and brightest young people here in the States. It is one of the biggest student protests this province has seen in years. Thousands of university and SEJEP students took over parts of the downtown core. It's a response to proposed tuition hikes that would see fees rise 70% over the next five years. Paul Karwatsky has more. Student activists started recruiting with the rising sun. There's such a large action happening today in spite of the rain. Outside, they were already chanting. Here at Dawson, the protest began at 6 a.m., the call to stop proposed hikes to tuition fees in Quebec. The people who are in power now and making these laws benefited from this cheap access to education, uh, and there's no reason why after them benefiting from it, they suddenly want to take it away from us. Classes were disrupted at institutions across Montreal for the one-day strike. By mid-afternoon, a sea of demonstrators gathered at Barry Square, a large crowd with a loud message. I think it's the massive protest that we've seen in the last 10 years, so we're very proud of that. Amid the throng students who know just how inaccessible education can be. I'm from the U.S., and the school I was going to go to was $56,000 a year. And SEJEP students concerned about how they'll pay for their future. Trying to pay for your apartment, trying to pay for food, trying to pay for tuition, it, it's too much, and some students can't do it. These protesters consider Jean Charest's proposed hikes a declaration of war, an increase of about $325 a year over the next five years to bring Quebec tuition on par with the national average. Right now, Quebecers pay about $2,000 a year to attend university, the cheapest tuition in Canada. Kilometers away from the noise, the education minister stood firm, saying the tuition hikes were just and that students have to pay their fair share. But for tens of thousands of others here today, the march and the message was unquestionably the priority. Paul Kowalski, CTV News. It's the ball and chain that stays with you until the day you die. 
It cannot be expunged or forgiven. It's the student debt bubble, and it's the looming crisis hanging over the head of every American. Weeks ago marked the day that student debt hit the $1 trillion mark. And for the students who are the lowest and in the lowest economic tier, things just got substantially tougher. Starting July 1st, federal Pell Grants are set to be cut for thousands of students. Here are the students that will be affected by the cuts. 65,000 new college students without diplomas or GEDs. 63,000 students who have been in school more than new maximum of six years under the Pell Grant. 300,000 students will have their grants reduced or eliminated because of more stringent income requirements. So what is going to happen when the student debt bubble bursts? Or can this crisis be averted? For more on that, I'm joined by Sarah Jaffe, associate editor at alternate.org. Sarah, what do you think about the recent decision to cut these Pell Grants? Well, it's class war, Abby. I mean, how else do you phrase it? I mean, I was out on a march last night with a bunch of student activists here, and their new chant, their new favorite chant is, one, two, three, four, tuition fees are class war. Um, the Pell Grants go to the poorest students. They go to the ones who don't qualify for merit aid. Um, in this case, they're cutting them, as you said, to, to students who have been in school for over six years, which is usually working people who are going back to school or who can't afford to go to school full time. Um, so they're taking it away for, once again, the hardest working people who are trying desperately to live the quote-unquote American dream that says if you go to college and get a degree, you'll get a better job and you'll have a better future. Sarah, why do you think these austerity measures are always targeted toward, toward the lowest economic I mean, down, it's like the people who need it the most. I mean, I know you're saying it's class war, but it just seems like it's just over and over again, these talks of eliminating the debt, and it's always just focused right on the people who need it the most. Those are the people who can't afford lobbyists. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, right? The, who You kick people when they're down, they have a harder time fighting back. What do you think about this interest rate debate um, the freezing of the interest rates. Do you think that this is? Do you think that this is really um, going to change things if it's frozen or not frozen? Do you think that there's a bigger issue at hand, and that this is kind of a distraction from that that bigger issue? Well, here's the thing. If they do actually let tuition, um, the interest rates double, that will materially affect a lot of students. Um, that's going to be thousands and thousands of students who will be paying twice as much interest on their student loans. It's absolutely an issue that we should be concerned about. The problem is right now that both parties in Congress agree we should extend the tuition, uh, freeze the tuition interest rates for a year. Um, that's one year. That's still not going to help. The economy is not magically going to be 100% better next year. Um, and meanwhile, they're just fighting over how to pay for it when, by the way, the government makes money on these loans, okay? Even at the, three, the lowest interest rate, even though around 3%, they're lending and they're making more money back than they are spending on these loans. So having these stupid arguments about how to pay for it, it's ridiculous. Sir, I see that you're wearing um, a red ribbon, and I know that's in solidarity with the, with the Canadian protests that are happening right now. How does their struggle um, relate to this struggle about the student debt crisis? Could you talk a little bit about that? So the red square is actually, um, it comes from the phrase, um, I'm sorry, my French is going to be off, so I'm just <laughs> not going to do it. But it's a reference to being squarely in the red or in debt. Um, so it's the same struggle there, right? The students in Quebec have been striking for, yesterday was their 100th day of striking, um, over a tuition hike, which is essentially is going to be more debt. Um, there are students in Australia protesting tuition hikes. There are students around this country protesting tuition hikes. 
Um, the students here at CUNY in New York have been protesting tuition hikes, and they've adopted the Red Square as part of their own movement. It's a symbol of the debt that we all have. I have student debt. I have had the same student debt for the last 10 years because I've essentially been able to only pay the interest on it for 10 years since I've been out of school. Um, it is a global movement, just like the austerity is the same. It's not exactly the same, but the policies are targeting the same people, and they are hitting in essentially the same ways around the world. And the students in Quebec and the students here in New York have been in communications. People that I know here have been up to Quebec to work with the students up there to learn their student union model and other tactics so that they can figure out how to get how we get 400, 500,000 people in the streets of New York, in the streets of Los Angeles, in the streets of San Francisco. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it seems like in other countries uh, there are massive protests of students fighting against this debt crisis in their countries, mm -hmm. and it just seems like why did it have to take the student debt to hit one trillion? And we're not really seeing that influx of, you know, thousands out in the streets protesting this. I mean, do you think that it's just kind of looming and that we're going to see that if nothing's done about this? I think the thing with debt is that it's delaying your it's delaying your payments, right? When you are taking out a college student loan, you don't think about having to pay it. You just think, I'm going to get through school, I'm going to get a good job, and I'll pay it off. And that has sort of been true. Um, although, like I said, I graduated 10 years ago, and I'm still carrying the same ball and chain. Um, but now that the job market is terrible, that something like half of all recent college grads are either unemployed or underemployed, yeah. um, we're seeing the fallacy of that story, which is that you can go to school and you will get a good job, and it doesn't matter how much debt you took out. Right. I mean, for the first so I think time, it's creeping up on us here. Yeah, for the first time, more, more of those unemployed are college graduates than not. I mean, so, right. so what is the right. solution here, other than, of course, alleviating the debt, expunging it, you know, offering uh, for you to be able to declare bankruptcy on it, all these things? I mean, should people start looking at alternatives other than going to college? I am a big fan of education. I have a <laughs> master's degree. I right. loved it. And I did. I went to school as an undergrad. I was an English major, which was certainly not going to get me a great job. Um, but I did it, and I loved it. And I don't want to be the person who's telling people not to go to school. However, I would say that if you are going to take out a massive amount of debt, you should think about where you're going to school, how much it's going to cost you, why you need to take out that much debt, um, and also, we need to be organizing. This needs to be a movement. This is why I'm wearing this. This is why a lot of people around this city and around the, this country are now wearing this square. Because we need to understand that this is a political problem. It's not just a personal problem. It can't be solved by you taking out a little bit less or a little bit more debt each year. We need to freeze the tuition rates, uh, the interest rates. We need to lower interest rates. We need to write down the principal on these loans. We need to fund public universities so that kids can actually go to school for free or very little money. I mean, we really need to entirely rethink the way we pay for higher education in this country. It is a shame when people have to choose between going to college or, you know, thinking that it's not worth it anymore. Um, and it really is a sad state of affairs. I, yeah, it's going to be a really important crisis and struggle to follow. Thanks so much for your work, Sarah Jaffe, editor, associate editor Thanks. at alternate.org. The American dream is a symbol of education and success, but many are finding themselves left with a lifetime of debt trying to achieve it. U.S. graduates can end up owing tens of thousands of dollars after college in an economy where they then struggle to find a job. Now they're questioning whether it's all worth it, as Artie's Marina Portnaya reports. 
It's the heaviest investment a young American can make, now becoming a trillion-dollar ticking time bomb for the nation. I have $20,000 in debt. $40,000. I'm $150,000 in debt. The U.S. student loan bubble has inflated larger than car or credit card debt. In this ballooning crisis, graduates now have financial deficits that rival home mortgages. In New York, many have taken to the streets, protesting against the unaffordable cost of higher education. We're already seeing a, a large increase in the number of student loan defaults across the country. And that's coming at a rate that is similar to the rate when the, when the mortgages, mortgage loans started to default as well. And like I said, this has a cumulative effect and it's a downward spiral. According to reports, more than 50% of recent college graduates are unemployed or working low-wage jobs that don't even require a Degree. Now, unlike other debt, student debt cannot be dismissed through bankruptcy. This means loans that U.S. students take out for higher education follows them for decades or possibly the rest of their lives. Mike Friedman has a Ph.D. in biology and works as a part-time teacher because he can't find a full-time position. It's the option of getting an education and then being in a state of financial and economic insecurity for the rest of your life. According to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Americans 60 years or older still owe $38 billion in student debt, and 10% of that group is past due on payments. Senior citizens can even have their Social Security checks taken away. The money reportedly redirected to banks waiting to collect. As the investment of a degree morphs from security to risk, more Americans are reportedly turning to online colleges to save money, while others are suing for a refund. Dozens of lawyers have filed class action lawsuits against their own law schools, accusing the colleges of fraud and inflating employment figures. It was an American dream when qualification equated to security. But now the once-cherished degree appears to be no more than a gamble. Marina Portnaya, RT, New York. For what it's worth, uh, one of the ways I paid for my own college education was through what was then called a National Defense Student Loan, which I qualified for because my undergraduate major was electrical engineering, uh, and at the time, I guess the nation thought they needed more engineers. In any event, uh, after graduating from Notre Dame, I then went to law school until I was forced to join the Navy to avoid the draft. And after the Navy, I went back to law school. And uh, all during that time, I had been released from making payments on my loan due to either being in the service or in law school. So I was already in my 30s with a wife and three children before I began paying off my own student loan, along with all of its accumulated interest. Uh, it took another 10 years of monthly payments to pay it off, and all the while my family had to sacrifice so that I could make those payments. So, if you want my advice, uh, a college education is wonderful. It totally changed my life and helped me become the first person in my family to get a little jump ahead. However, if you have to go in debt, particularly the sizable debts that college tuitions now require, well, all that I can say is that, uh, personally, there was no way I'd go into debt uh, just to get a piece of paper from a college. You know, if it's an education you're looking for, there are now many schools, including Harvard and MIT, that are offering free courses online. Of course, you won't get that expensive little piece of paper that comes with graduation, but you will get an education. 
And uh, then you can act like some of the other famous Harvard students who never got their piece of paper either. Not that I would uh, take them for role models myself, but uh, little Billy Gates and the Zuckerman kids seem to have made out all right with just the knowledge and not the diploma. You know, uh, college debt almost certainly means that you are going to be an indentured slave for the rest of your life. So be sure that that is what you want before you commit yourself to such a heartless existence. And my final thought for today on this issue is to suggest that uh, you give some thought to the fact that here in the U.S., the so-called student loan bubble has now reached $1 trillion, which is even larger than the housing bubble that already has much of the world's financial system struggling for life. Should all of the students who are burdened with this debt simply come together and jointly walk away from these unjust loans, the world financial system would uh, probably come close to collapsing. Now, that's a lot of power to have in the hands of some well-educated young people that uh, really don't have much of a future ahead of them. But one way or another, that very same group of people are going to be middle-aged one day, and they will be the ones who are then running things. So what's going to be interesting to see in the years just ahead is uh, how soon today's young people decide to take over the reins and uh, take over the reins from those dusty old farts who are calling the shots right now. Uh, who knows, maybe 2012 will be an eventful year after all. Well, that should be enough of me for a while, and so for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>